how I got here. The inside stories of startups and innovation in travel and transportation with your hosts, FocusWire's Kevin May and Mozio's David Litwack. Hello there and welcome to another episode of How I Got Here. That's uh, Mozio and FocusWire's weekly podcast where we interview the entrepreneurs and innovators in travel, tourism, hospitality and transportation. Uh, This week we warmly welcome Rami Zaydan. He's the founder at Lifehouse. Uh, Many of you will know Lifehouse already but for those of you that don't, the company was created in 2017 and has eight properties under its own brand name and manages a total of 25. He was previously vice president at TPG Capital and worked at the Starwood Capital Group in the role of acquisitions. Uh, Rami, thank you so much for joining us on How I Got Here. Uh, It's a pleasure. Thanks for having me. Okay. Uh, Those of you that have been tuning into many of these will realize the very first question that we always ask all of our guests is to tell us how you got here. Yeah. Um, yeah. So thanks for, thanks for having me. Um, there's a few other um, uh, resume uh, tidbits that I'll, I'll probably get into with the story, but um, in short, uh, Lifehouse was the genesis of a collection of personal and professional experiences. Um, and to kind of start from the beginning, I grew up in Minnesota to two Lebanese immigrant parents and, um, my mother passed when I was young and I effectively saw there was an opportunity to, um, to find my nourishment or my nurturing um, uh, without, the, without my mother by just focusing on school or soccer and being good at certain things as it was quite challenging to be um, somewhat of a minority in a pretty homogenous place. Um, and as I kind of evolved, I saw that um, to develop confidence in who I was, it was a, a, a you know highly correlated to being good at certain things as opposed to just feeling uh, a sense of belonging in the universe. And this will kind of segue into the brand of Lifehouse um, and less so about the business. Um, nevertheless, I, 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 I left Minnesota, went to Johns Hopkins University to start, studied economics and um, and chemical engineering, got injured playing soccer, transferred out to the London School of Economics, and throughout all those experiences saw that, wow, there were much more diverse populations outside of the state of Minnesota, um, and uh, felt felt really connected uh, in, in many other ways. So um, uh, I, I took a, a job initially in the finance sector, partially because I didn't come from money, um, and I didn't know exactly what I wanted to do. I was a creative at my core, but saw being creative and, you know, struggling with fitting in in Minnesota wasn't a really great uh, formula for, for success. Um, so focused on kind of uh, figuring out a more pragmatic approach to a career path and finding my personal fulfillment. Took a job with Deutsche Bank in, in the last recession in their special situations group. And we were buying portfolios of loans that were distressed and Excel was our baby. And so I became quite good at Excel modeling, um, basically building templates for how to, how to quickly underwrite hundred million dollar portfolios of thousands of different distressed uh, uh, pieces of real estate and saw that building these robust templates was enough to automate some people's jobs, 
um, because the the templates and the the, the formulas etc did all the work for for people and it actually was more productive and um, and saw that building models was actually a creative uh, outlet for me um, and being being creative person. And, um, and then we also financed hotels at that time. We ended up finding, financing the Nomad Hotel in New York. And I saw there was an avenue for me to kind of uh, pursue a creative passion in design, operation, uh, operational complexity, and still you know, make a decent living. Um, and so I went on to Starwood. Uh, and at Starwood, um, uh, wore a few different hats, but the latter part of my time there helped uh, build a, a management company um, and learned a lot. Um, so I kind of jumped from place to place to learn, uh, which was really great for me and not maybe the best for my employers, but, um, appreciative of all the, uh, <laughs> all, all the mentorship that I, that I got. Um, and quickly jumping into the hotel space there in the management side, saw that again, Excel could automate people's jobs away. And there was a dearth of sophistication. Um, you, you know, whether it's building OS and E templates or, budget templates. There was a lot of people spending their time in Excel and documents that, that didn't add value to a guest and didn't add value to the real estate owners underlying. Um, in 2014, and so I kind of developed this, hey, I want to be a hotelier and have my own brand because I have my own ideas and somewhat of a naive uh, ego-driven uh, approach. This was 2014. Um, and, and not, 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 not something I'm proud about. Um, but in then, uh, in 2014, my brother passed away in a, in a tragic accident. Uh, he was a doctor and uh, humanitarian and, um, the opposite of me, very focused on how do I be a better person and not necessarily that focused on economics. Um, and I remember feeling if I made a billion dollars immediately, it wouldn't even change my mood. And I saw I needed to do something that was a little bit more or quite a bit more meaningful to me personally. Um, so I tried to figure out, okay, where can I add value to the universe and do something fulfilling and make a living? And so I saw there was an opportunity to, um, so I immediately went to Lebanon, uh, where, where my family's roots were, where my brother used to go and, and try to connect with my roots. And in doing so, I kind of saw there was a huge opportunity to use the travel ecosystem to help bring the world together. And I felt it was more powerful to work on solving that big problem than to work on even policy, uh, as that doesn't change people's per you know, behaviors, um, uh, or perceptions. So I saw there's an opportunity to kind of marry all my skill sets. And so I, I took a job with Seidel to figure out how to build lifestyle, real estate brands, hotel brands. And then, uh, they were really good at that. And, um, the, the genesis that they were good at building brands. And I saw there was still an opportunity to use Excel and software is far more powerful than Excel, obviously. Um, and solve the problems that exist throughout that entire ecosystem, which are complex because you have real estate owners, real estate lenders, travelers, et cetera, uh, tech uh, operations brand. And so uh, it's not a trivial problem to solve. I saw at the time, this was 2016, 2017, that um, there were you know companies like Airbnb, Sprouting, Uber, et cetera, where, um, where there was capital available to solving complex problems. Um, and the capital that had funded most hotel companies prior uh, was real estate private equity, which wasn't suited to solve complex problems in an aggressive way. 
Um, and, um, and at that time we work was a thing and everyone was looking at, are you classifying yourself as a real estate company or a tech company? And I don't like those classifications. I think they're too broad. Um, but, uh, fundamentally I saw there was an opportunity to look at a hotel company as an enterprise SaaS business, um, where you sign really long-term contracts. Uh, you have really sticky revenue and you have a sales team that goes out and acquires contracts and the margin on those contracts is close to a hundred percent. So in many ways, it looks like a very scalable enterprise SaaS business uh, with really high barriers to entry. Um, and to solve the problem, we needed capital. So I uh, went out to, uh, to the venture capital world and uh, I think uh, I missed the TPG, TPG stint, but large, largely speaking, I went to TPG just to, to get a bonus and, uh, and save up to be an entrepreneur. <laughs> um, uh, yeah. Um, so quit my job. yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> so, um, so that, that worked out well. And, um, and then I, I was able to get some really great investors to, to believe in, in the idea and solving the problem. And, um, and it's a complex problem because you have to you have to you know basically sell a vision to real estate owners who are putting investments into things well before you have a product, uh, which is no easy task. So uh, we were pretty successful in the early days and that allowed us to raise a lot more capital. And now today we have 25 hotels. Uh, we've raised about 35 million for our opco, 350 million of real estate capital on the side. Um, we've got great partnerships with some public companies and, um, and we've built eight proprietary software products in our own tech stack. And fundamentally our, our mission here is to make uh, travel more meaningful and more accessible and uh, make owning a hotel uh, more profitable and, uh, and, and more seamless uh, for hotel owners. And I think we're decently uh, well on our way. Okay. Uh, thank you very much. I mean, you're the first person, and David might correct me if I'm wrong on this, that we've interviewed out of the dozens and dozens that's mentioned mentors. Very, very few entrepreneurs that we've interviewed have ever mentioned mentors, and then, which I think is quite surprising because I think mentorship is a, is, a, is a terrific program if it's formulaic like a corporate program or if it's just something that you go out and do individually. So... Is there a is there a mentor that you're happy to name now, or just can describe what you learned from one of your mentors that has put you in the right, both um, kind of emotional frame of mind and um, kind of corporate frame of mind to be doing what you're doing now? Yeah, um, I think it's a it's a generous description, maybe uh, using that word in my earlier uh, statements. But I, I guess what I would say is I, I try to learn from every experience, whether they are intentionally trying to help or not. I think there's <laughs> been, there have been some folks who haven't necessarily tried um, to help, but I learned a lot from that. For example, I wasn't the most diplomatic uh, uh, person when I was this, you know, uh, kind of, you know, jumping from job to job, trying to extract as much information and, and knowledge as I could. Um, uh, and, you know, learning from those experiences and having people, uh, you know, conduct themselves in their job that still still taught me. I think there have been some mentors that have taught me different things along the way. Um, uh, and um, it, I, I think 
collected those different tools, uh, whether it's the, on the business side or the personal side or the business ethics side um, that have kind of evolved me into who I am. But I wouldn't say today I have a, a singular mentor that I continually keep in touch with. Mm. And uh, yeah, yeah, for sure. And um, you're one of also very few people that we've interviewed that is a sole founder. Uh, many, many CEOs and founders that we have have been part of a partnership. Is there, did you have a co-founder at one point for this life house or, or why did you go down the sole founder route? I did. I did. I did have a co-founder um, uh, who went to the same university as me at Johns Hopkins and was the tech side of the business mm-hmm. early on. Um, who's gone on to be a, a successful entrepreneur himself. And um he was very helpful to the launch of this business and we were, we were a good partnership because we were very different in our skill sets and very complementary in our uh, work ethic and, um, and drive. Um, and, uh, you know, and, and, and candidly, it was, a, it was, a, it was, a, it was a great, great, great partnership um, to, to, to launch Lifehouse. And I, I having not been a tech uh, entrepreneur it was had got really great um, you know uh, I think perspective uh, from from him and um, and now I would say I'm, I'm a sole founder you know we don't necessarily keep in, in touch but um, you know there are definitely things about having a, a partner at, at my level that that I miss and there are some benefits to being uh, to not to not having friction as well uh, last last one from me if i can i mean it's you've got all this experience as you say you're almost like a sponge going through all these different organizations and absorbing of much experience and knowledge and process and all those kind of things it's still quite a considerable leap to do all of that which you could have seemingly carried on doing and earning some very very good money in the vc world and all those kind of things to suddenly go from there go okay right i'm ready so what was the what was the moment where you thought Okay, I'm ready. Yeah. Um, so I was risk averse by nature in some degrees. And so part of what I saw was I was, no matter how much money I was making in the private equity world, um, I was unfulfilled and I was really stifling my, uh, what made me, you know, get up in the morning. And, and um, so that was, so to your point, um, yeah, it was, it was still quite a leap. And actually, I think you don't see a, too many people leave the private equity or VC world where they're making a bunch of current income, cash income, uh, because the opportunity cost is so high. Um, and so I think I left at a good place where, you know, I wasn't a managing director and, you know, had a family or anything. I was, I was kind of on my own. Um, and so, you know, I didn't have a huge opportunity cost. Um, and, uh, also I was pulled in through having, um, you know, some, I was an advisor to a company and I basically saw there was an opportunity to raise capital and, and, and pay myself a salary, um, in short order, so to speak. So I didn't, I I knew that I was going to give myself about a year to figure it out. And we closed, (laughs) we closed our seed round, uh, seven months seven months uh, after kind of starting. So, um, 
yes, it was, it was a leap. And, um, I'm really, really grateful to the investors, uh, that, 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 uh, believed me in the beginning. So I want to delve a little bit into the how of how you went from property number one to scaling, because I think there's a lot of interesting things in your business. One, um, you guys manage some hotels yourself, but you don't manage all of them. Um, your SaaS product powers some other ones, uh, and and uh, or they're not all under your brand. Let me restate that. I'd like to like for you to actually clarify a little bit of that for us. Um, but the I, I can you. I got a couple of follow-up questions here, but let's start with how did you go from one property to multiple? Um, I feel like there are a lot of private equity real estate guys that I know Blue Flag is helping you guys expand right now that never get involved at the first concept, but they'll, they'll, get, they'll love to help you scale from number three to 50. Um, so often that first one is the hardest. So how did you start there? Yeah. Um, so I actually again, credit to my prior experiences, but I, I kind of wrote this thesis when I was at TPG about there was a mispricing in small hotels um, that were underserved by sophisticated capital, sophisticated operators, and any sort of legitimate brand. And so basically you have a bunch of hotels that were small that were underserved by sophistication and you could basically find real estate investors to buy uh, mispriced hotels if you gave them sophisticated attention. Um, and so the belief from owners didn't have to be, hey, this startup is going to change the world. The belief needed to be, hey, this is a good real estate deal based on the price I'm paying for the, for the real estate. Um, and so we, so in that, in order to do that, I had to, kind of have the general knowledge of how to buy real estate at, you know, decent prices, because to your point, it's hard to convince a blue flag or any real estate group that's risk averse, um, bet on an operator that doesn't even exist yet. Um, so uh, we, I, my prior job was finding good real estate deals in, in my prior companies. And I saw there were a particularly uh, mispriced space with small hotels um, where the big institutional groups weren't looking to buy them because it was too much effort for such a little check. And um, so we started in the small hotel space and, um, and proved out a model. With small hotels, I'll, I'll ramble for just one minute here. Small hotels have a different problem than big hotels, but uh, salaried staff really burden a PNL in a small hotel because there's lower revenues. So it really forces you to figure out a, a staffing model and build software and an operating model that is a staff light. And then that, those, those constraints help evolve that model to larger hotels. So we were, I'm really pleased that we started with small hotels because it forced us to think about every dollar that was going into the operation and every touch point of the guest and now luckily those learnings apply perfectly and scale perfectly to larger hotels. Um, our, our, our largest hotel today is 135 rooms. Um, and, um, and now the software doesn't just power automation. We have, um, we have a hyper luxury hotel in the Berkshires that's $1,700 a night. And uh, you know, the software powers hospitality. And I think that's something maybe we don't get enough credit for in the press, but we, I'll use this analogy because I, I think your listeners will, will appreciate it, but uh, it's somewhat cliche. Uber didn't just 
build software to automate the dispatcher. They built software that made it very easy to become a really good driver. Um, and so lowers the amount of training required to be a driver and increases the reliability of it. And we thought about the same way for on-site staff. So we basically tried to automate, and I'll get back to your question, automate jobs that don't add value to the guest experience. Um, so that's everything from finance, accounting, revenue management, performance marketing, all those things, HR. Um, and automating a cost in a PNL is a risk-free cost savings. Um, so as a real estate investor, you don't have to believe much. All you have to know is that there's going to be zero finance dollars in your, in your PNL. Um, and so it was about finding a really compelling risk adjusted pitch to real estate investors or hotel owners, if you will, um, on why we can create value for their property. And, um, it became, you know, as you build trust in the ecosystem, it becomes easier to grow. Um, so that was a whirlwind answer. No, but so it's what you said about Uber, actually. it's uh, I've said this before. I mean, obviously, Mozio is a ground transportation company. So um, I, I use Uber uh, versus taxi magic slash curb analogies on, on a very regular basis for a lot of different things, actually, <laughs> to the annoyance of uh, people in the for my new company. Um, but uh, I've said the same thing about how Uber's biggest insight, uh, innovation was actually being able to boot bad drivers off the platform and, and, and enforce quality among service and, and hospitality because um like driving is kind of like you know driving but like if you end up with someone who doesn't pick you up and but they happen to be the cousin of the owner of the taxi company it's kind of like you're you're out of luck so i i totally um get where you're coming from there um i want to you know ask you a little bit about how um why you have something called Lifehouse Connect. Actually, let me let's start there. You know, what is Lifehouse Connect? Is that what you're referring to, and that you are also managing everything, or is it just the the platform that someone else can manage, and it's just the tech and all this, all the uh, automating the uh, the cost and the PL, PNL portion of it? Yeah. So um, Lifehouse, I, I'm not sure where Lifehouse Connect came from, but it's not a term we use anymore, candidly. No. Um, so uh, we have. Why don't I just quickly explain the the product lines. Yeah. So, um, so at our core, we're a hotel brand and management company. Think a tech enabled Marriott. Um, uh, there has been a shift, uh, in that space to focus on brand and stop focusing on management and Marriott's become largely a franchise business. Yeah. Um, we believe these things work uh, closely together. And so we do both of them and, Basically, having been in the lifestyle brand space for quite some time, I saw that there's going to be a there's a proliferation of lifestyle brands and uh, a faster way to grow and to monetize our software uh, faster is we should manage other people's brands as well. Um, and so that would is what we would call our white label powered by Lifehouse management company. Um, and while it's powered by our software owners still want a management company at the wheel. And so uh, we monetize our software via a management contract. And I think that's an important uh, note. I always, you know, everyone that goes back to that real estate company versus tech company question is, you know, I always said, well, sure, I can be a tech company, but then my customer changes from an owner to an operator and the economics change pretty dramatically. There's not a lot of hotel SaaS companies that have done so well. 
um, long term because you get such little economics out of each hotel. You need a million hotels to be uh, to be a billion dollar company, um, you know, thereabouts. And so our view was let's solve the whole problem. Software is a huge differentiator, um, but it's not the only thing we do. And um, and we can you know have a very lucrative business model in that way. Um, although, uh, you know, struggling to communicate that it's not just SaaS, it's, um, it's, uh, it's, a, it's a management company. Interesting. And so you guys, so then the next question, I guess, then is how are you guys thinking about expansion, right? So um, you can facilitate things under the Lifehouse brand, or you can manage other brands. And I feel like I have... Um, uh, experienced, uh, you know, VCs uh, or product people saying, "Run in this one direction. This is the one that's appealing for you. Why are you doing both?" You know, and and uh, um, and I imagine you might have gotten similar questions. And like, uh, how do you think about saying, "Hey, we're going to coordinate with Blue Flag and we're going to be launching a lot of Lifehouse branded uh, stuff," versus someone else dealt with all that? We don't even have to like think about choosing a property. We found them. They want us to to do it, and we can kind of kind of come at the end and monetize it. And and have you decided to choose attack, or is there a reason to to maintain both? Um, so it's a great question because it gets asked often. And to your point, a lot of people want, what I've heard is venture investors want to bet on something and a very specific thing. Um, and having multiple things, uh, convolutes that, that betting decision, so to speak. Um, and so, uh, my belief is that we should do things that make good business sense, um, and so we've built, let's say we've built the architecture for Lifehouse and the tech is kind of a white labeled product. And so if we can quickly layer it into other hotels and brands and the margin on that revenue stream is really high, uh, then we should do it. And it's actually really high margin revenue and it's a really big problem. And I'd also say, you know, we started from, okay, what is the problem that we're solving in the real estate community? And there's a lot of real estate out there that's fine that just needs a better operator and it basically increases our tam so to speak in that there's hotels that may not be a good fit for the lifehouse brand because you know this we have the chateau and the berkshires and it's like we shouldn't convert that to a lifehouse um but it definitely needs an operator and you know, a, a tech enabled one that can that solve, that drive more profitability out of this asset. Um, so we found a way to not be, you know, ego oriented about our brand per se, and just focused on solving the problem. Um, and it's really scalable to be a, a white label uh, management company. And um, there's not a lot of people doing it because it's not necessarily that sexy, but um, to us, it's really sexy uh, because it solves the problem pretty elegantly. Uh, we can plug in our, our you know, our systems and, uh, and increase revenue in the first month by 30% and, and, you know, let go of all back of house uh, uh, labor. And then the front of house people, instead of being in spreadsheets and reports, are focused on the guest. Um, so we like to say we reduce the headcount in the hotel and increase guest reviews. Um, so, uh, it's a problem that we're all, it's still part of our DNA to solve that problem. Um, and, um, we're not interested in necessarily picking a singular path. And last thing I'll say is we're going to launch new brands as well. So we'll have a budget motel brand and a, and a luxury brand probably, uh, later this year. Very cool. Well, so let me just ask you then, because, 
uh, for the, the sake of our, our, our uh, listeners who are a lot of startup uh, founders who um, uh, I won't go into, but I've gotten a lot of that exact same pushback that you have about choose a path from, you know, venture or venture capitalists. What was your response in that then, right? Like why, when they go to you, why are you still launching new brands? Why don't you just find more chateaus in the Berkshires, <laughs> like, uh, you know, to, 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 to fund, you know, uh, sorry, not to fund, to, sorry, to, uh, to operate instead of funding other things. What is your response? Yeah. So um, I think why you don't see a lot of real estate operator startups of any real estate asset class is because you need to understand the customer and the customer as a real estate owner, it's a B2B product. So one customer is a real estate owner and the real estate owner problem is, uh, is uh, fundamentally, uh, you know, nuanced because it's constrained by what the physical real estate is. And so we try to design solutions for real estate and real estate is the limiting factor because we're asset light. And to stay asset light, we have to be malleable to real estate. Otherwise we have to go buy our own assets. And um, in, in, in that light, uh, as supply is the challenging thing to get in our business, um, it's always focused on what does a real estate owner need and how can we create value for them? And, um, and so long as we don't have two separate business lines and departments focusing on the white label and the, and the branded, um, then it makes a lot of business sense as well. Um, and you know, it takes some massaging, but a lot of people love it. Um, and, Frankly, it's really fast growing. 60% of our portfolio is the white label thing now. Um, it's grown 150% uh, uh, during COVID um, because there's a lack of a real estate capital availability in this environment right now. And so seeing the agility that we've had has really excited investors um, because it's somewhat recession proof. And um and so in short, I think if there's a compelling business argument, our investors thankfully are, are willing to listen. You said um, a few moments ago, Rami, that you know, the white label parts of the, of the business is not very sexy, which is why a lot of people don't do it and why you like it. It's only a question of time before everyone kind of catches up and realizes, hang on a second, the folk at Lifehouse, they're onto something here. Or do you just think it's just not something that, presumably you hope or that they're interested in doing so you probably wouldn't have heard of these names but the biggest management companies out there are Ambridge and highgate have you heard of those groups yeah um and so i think why it's not sexy i think that's a nuanced thing to say but what that what i meant by that is brands oftentimes get premium valuations um and uh and for one and two uh, management companies typically get valued on the NPV of their contracts, um, which is not a very sexy thing to sell VC investors. Um, so I don't think that alone is sexy enough to sell VC investors. And I also would say that um, uh, it's a complex problem to solve still. So, you know, good luck to anybody that wants to start a company in that space. Uh, you've got to build a lot of software um, and, um, and, uh, as a practical matter, I think what we're trying to do is, uh, powered pa hotels that are powered by Lifehouse will eventually, um, feel very much like a B2B brand, much like Slack and Asana and, uh, 
the other, you know, uh, enterprise software products uh, feel uh, like a like a consumer product, and why why that does end up translating to a powerful brand um, is, you know, our our users, our employees in these hotels uh, are, you know, love the software. Um, they walk around with an iPad, or and our housekeepers walk around with an iPod Touch their training is so minimal and they feel really good about the work that they're doing and um, versus, you know, using opera or some PMS software out there. So long story short and our owners get, you know, great, great reporting. So I, I, um, uh, sexy is maybe, uh, uh, not the right word. (laughs) Okay. Well, so actually I want to kind of restate something you said there just to see if I'm interpreting correctly. It's almost kind of like you're putting a brand around the non-sexy part of the industry of management of competence. Um, and previously the brand was all around, you know, uh, just lifestyle like Mary, like you said, but they opted out of the operational component. You're almost putting a brand around the operational component and saying, okay, VCs, you don't normally, you you don't like value us like the brand, but we have the, the cash flow of the management company. Is, is that a correct interpretation? I want to adjust it slightly because I don't think brand is purely an optics thing. uh, The way I think it sometimes gets portrayed Um, having our entire team, for example, aligned on an ethos and having the people uh, at the end of the day, we're, we deliver hospitality as a service. So uh, the people on the ground need to feel connected to a greater mission than just a pragmatic job scope. Um, and uh, candidly, it's a very complex system. So hotel owners don't understand hotels uh, often, uh, definitely not the tech underlying, uh, barely, you know, OTAs. And so uh, to have a simplified, digestible uh, uh, story uh, is, is, is valuable. Um, and I think there's so much noise out there. Everybody wants to say they're doing something with tech in the hotel world. And so I do think it's important to be able to have a, a digestible um, uh, a product um, uh, in, a, in a way that's, that's communicated to owners. We interviewed uh, a little while back uh, Avi from the uh, Pali Society, you know, an- another entrepreneur who's created this brand of uh, lifestyle hotels. I think what's quite interesting is that our conversation with you this first, you know, 25, 30 minutes has been a lot around the numbers and the tech and, you know, all those kind of things where I think it would be fair to say a large part of a or a similar time that we spent talking to him was about the details around design and things like that. He's really into the design and the look and feel of his hotels. Do you, do you get involved? Are you interested in that type of detail within the properties? Yes, um, immensely. Um, I do think the hotelier of the past, whether it's Ian Schrager or Andre, excuse me, Andre Bellage or um, or whomever, um, you know, uh, built their brands around themselves, um, and uh, they weren't, you know, highly scalable venture-backed businesses. And fundamentally, I'm excited about the responsibility that I have and the, uh, to our investors and to our, uh, to, to our, to our customers. So I'm trying to think about ways to scale myself, but fundamentally the brand was the brand Lifehouse was built on the storyline that I communicated earlier, which is like, how do we help people 
belong to the universe and um, feel that sense of belonging because that sense of belonging doesn't just make them feel better, um, but it, 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 uh, it gives them a sense of other people's belonging in the universe as well and makes their life feel more fulfilled and meaningful. Um, so I'm deeply connected to the brand. Uh, I finally just hired our first creative director uh, who starts next month. So I've been owning the creative. I picked the linens, the scents. I've got a, our own you know, candle line we've launched. I'm highly in, integrated into that. Um, but as we think about scale, I'm also, uh, I think I can think about things from a first principle standpoint. And I think there's a creativity is actually a really complex formula. And if we can break down that formula granularly enough, we can, we can scale creative things. And so our, I've internalized all interior design um, and all creative into our company so, so that we can constantly own the creative. Um, and uh, that's everything from renderings to graphic design to, to architectural design and procurement. And um, yeah, I, I, you get my, my creative team and my design team probably say I get overly involved. Um, <laughs> so I'm, I'm trying to get out of it because um, you know, as we scale, people need to feel empowered and I don't think I have all of the answers and it's definitely not an ego trip for me. So I wanted to rewind to one of the very first things you said. You actually touched on the immigrant experience a little bit there. And um, I had to smile because um, my mother was an Estonian immigrant to Minnesota, actually, to in oh, wow. prior, prior Lake, actually, is where uh, <laughs> she grew up. I'm not sure if you know that area. but um, I, do. I do. Yeah. So I spent my summers going there. Um, and so uh, I know what you're talking about when you say kind of like, you know, the world is bigger than Minnesota. I think she, you know, I have very positive things to say about Minnesota in general, but yeah, it can be a little insular. Um, I, I think you also, um, I think you touched on uh, this idea of belonging a lot and, and I, I, and it linked to your immigrant experience. And I think you alluded to several things that I don't want to put words in your mouth. So I'd like you to just explore that a little bit more. Is it is this, this search for belonging maybe because you, you felt like, you know, this immigrant experience and um, that you were a little bit of fish out of water or, 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 or yeah, maybe delve into that a bit. Yeah. Um, so uh, t- in short, I would say, I don't necessarily want to say that I had a, uh, uh, experience that was was uh you know unsavory because of my race or anything of that sort because people had it a lot worse than me i want to just be very clear about that um uh my mother died when i was six and so uh and my dad wasn't like a strong communicator so instead of having someone at home say hey it's okay to be who you are um i didn't have that so my goal was how do i fit in and, you know, it's a very Christian dominated uh, society where every Sunday you don't fit in um, and every Christmas you don't fit in and et cetera, et cetera. And so for me, it was uh, a, a hyper aware challenge to sort out. Um, and, um, and I don't think I'm alone and I don't think it's always related to ethnicity or race. I think um, sometimes you don't fit in if you don't have a certain knowledge or skill set. Or um, and so, what I fundamentally believe is that um, you know we're all just a node in a really big network, and helping people realize that their nodes belonging and everyone else's nodes belonging um, ha- can help us work all together to to work through this thing we call life. And, um, I think travel is a really great tool for, for that. 
Um, and, uh, and I don't mean it in the cliche sense, but I think just even getting exposure, we have a hotel in Little Havana. If you don't speak Spanish, you're going to have a tough time out there. And it's in, you know, in the U S so I don't even necessarily mean you need to travel and, you know, camp and meet these, you know, different tribes. I think, I think I read 60% of urban population growth is through uh, minority uh, uh, communities. And, you know, you can just go into urban locations and, and get exposure. Um, and so I, I, I'm, um, I'm interested in helping people uh, uh, appreciate the diverse experiences. And I think people get a lot out of stepping into unknown territory that does a lot of good for them. Um, and then that kind of carries themselves out into the world. And I think the last thing I'll say on that is if you, um, if you feel more uh, like a greater sense of belonging. So when you walk into our hotels, uh, you know, we try to make, you know, tell an authentic design story and narrative. Um, Cause if you feel that sense of truth, that this story is real, uh, that gives you a slight edge maybe of confidence that allows you to say, Hey, I feel confident enough to say hi to a stranger in a way that if this was like wrong or tacky or, or didn't ring true, I would probably stay in my little comfort zone. Um, and then those experiences help evolve and permeate the universe. And that's, you know, probably more than you wanted to hear, but how I think about it. Not at all. No, that's, that's, uh, that's perfect. Um, so would you, I guess, how, how, last question on this subject and how do you, how do you think about LifeHouse then as like a mission driven company versus profit? I guess I, I think, right. Like we're in a time here where, where, you know, Nike, uh, is, 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 you know, talking a lot about social justice and good for them. Um, but on the other side of the equation, uh, you've got the wing that just basically spontaneously combusted because they hugged feminism too closely. Right. Like, and, um, I think there, you know, people are trying to figure out how to be a company with a cause, um, in this day and age without, um, having it, you know, backfire. How do you, how do you weigh that? kind of goes back to what I said in the beginning, which is you kind of have to marry a mission with a financial viable business. If you want to do things, I believe, obviously there's, there's, there's obviously success stories um, in, in either case. Um, uh, at the end of the day, our culture at, at Lifehouse is predicated on the idea that it's more meaningful to be engaged in solving a complex problem than not to have a problem at all. And so I don't think it's a, there's an easy answer. So we get excited about nuanced, complex problem solving and solving that problem for one is like, you know, uh, during the George Floyd protests and when the sky turned orange this summer, um, you know, we were all having conversations about, well, what should we as a company be doing um, about this? And obviously there are people at some of the end of the spectrum that said, oh, well, we should go get in the streets and we should go donate to uh, climate uh, related causes. And I kind of think back and on climate, I have maybe an obtuse perspective, but I, I like uh, Bjorn Lomberg, who's, who's, who's done a lot of work on, on the topic. And I think that solving, solving complex problems requires a, a nuanced, complex solution and people that are well suited to solve them should uh, have, a, have, a, have a responsibility to them. And I think in terms of focus to your question earlier, we're focused on solving a, a singular problem that's related to kind of connecting the universe. And I don't think we should be 
spending a lot of time in other areas at this stage of our company. And I think our, our company is pretty bought into, hey, the, the work we're doing has a longer term mission. Um, in our hotels, we practice, you know, sustainable practices, whether that's um, uh, plant-based orientation menus in F&B or, you know, no red, red list fish on any of our menus because um, I think the oceans are overfished. Um, and more than that, I think we, we believe in education. So we'll do a lot of sustainability talks um, uh, uh, instead of, you know, music performances, you'll see more, you know, educational programming um, pre-COVID at least. So long story short, we try to use the space we have to, um, to do what we can, but uh, at the end of the day, we need to also survive financially. Okay, so uh, last question from us then. Uh, and I'll take you right back to something that you said at the beginning, which is when you were talking about when you worked in the, uh, in the finance world and you said, you know, you could make, and I'm paraphrasing here, you said you make a billion dollars and it would never change your mood. So just tell us then, what does change your mood for good and bad very quickly? <laughs> well, I try to be as stable as I can so the mood doesn't change too, too dramatically. <laughs> Um, I think I came clear at the holidays. I got a few notes from employees saying that, uh, how, uh, how grateful they are to be part of this mission. We start our Monday calls with a, a zoom meditation. Um, I think that my team works far more than 40 hours a week and, uh, seeing people, working relentlessly and uh, working hard towards something that I started and they're very much a part of. is like a really emotionally uh, powerful thing for me and really rewarding, um, uh, independent of, of the stresses. Uh, what uh, sends me downwards? Um, <laughs> I, don't, uh, I don't understand when people will go out of their way to cause harm. Um, whether that's, you know, there's a real estate negotiation practice, which is, uh, you know, hold out and, you know, uh, uh, cause fatigue in the other person or use the legal system to, to create havoc. Um, I just don't understand that. And, yeah. Uh, I try to I try to trust that there's a, a, a something good that can come out of that, but it's it's hard. Okay, that was great, um, Rami. Thank you so much for joining us. Uh, we really appreciate your time. Likewise, thanks so much for having me. This was a pleasure. Okay, you've been listening to another episode of How I Got Here. That's uh, Mozio and Focuswise weekly podcast where we interview the entrepreneurs and innovators in travel, tourism, and hospitality. Uh, if you're not a subscriber to our podcast, you can do so all the usual places, including Spotify, uh, iTunes, Google Podcasts, uh, Amazon Tuning, all those kind of places, as I say. So go on there, subscribe, give us a nice review. We always like to read those. Uh, but otherwise, thank you very much for tuning in. On behalf of Dave Denai, thanks ever again, uh, Rami, for joining us, and we'll see you all next time. Thanks for listening to the How I Got Here podcast. We'll be back next week with more inside stories behind startups and innovation in travel and transportation. Check mozio.com slash move for a complete write-up of the highlights of every podcast with translations into five languages. And get your daily dose of news on the digital travel economy by subscribing to the newsletter at focuswire.com. See you next week.